Today's episode is brought to you by Jeannie Vanasco's new memoir, Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl. In her review of the book in Time magazine, Lori Hals Anderson writes the following. Vanasco asks a question central to our national conversation about abuse. Is it possible to be a good person who commits a terrible act? More than a decade after the attack, Vanasco decided to look for her rapist and see if he would speak to her about what happened. The idea of such a confrontation is bold, unsettling, and timely. She wanted to find out how a person who hurts others talks to himself about his actions. If we're ever going to reduce sexual violence, it's a critically important question. Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl is available now from Ten House Books. Next up is my conversation with the poet Rob Schlegel about his third collection of poetry, In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps, selected by Brenda Shaughnessy for the Iowa Poetry Prize. Rob is also the co-editor of the Catenary Press, a press dedicated to the designing and publishing of handmade chapbooks. For the bonus audio archive, he reads from Sarah Nicholson's Mortal Tales and Donna Stonecipher's Ten Ruins. You can find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio archive at patreon.com slash between the covers, as well as discover other incentives to becoming a supporter of the show, from Ursula K. Le Guin's Conversations on Writing to Morgan Parker's Magical Negro or signed prints of Alan Crawford's Whitman Illuminated and Matt Kish's prints from Moby Dick in Pictures. To becoming an early Tin House reader, receiving 12 Tin House books throughout the year, months before they are available to the general public. All of this and more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is the poet Rob Schlegel. Schlegel is the author of The Lesser Fields from the Center of Literary Publishing, selected by James Loggenbach for the Colorado Prize for Poetry, and January Machine from Four Way Books, selected by Stephanie Burt for the Grub Street National Book Prize. His poetry has appeared in the Iowa Review, Boston Review, Poetry, 
Columbia Poetry Review, and elsewhere. A graduate of Linfield College and the University of Montana with an MFA in poetry, Rob Schlegel has taught both at Whitman College and in the MFA program at Portland State University, and is also co-editor with Daniel Popik and Rowan Al-Khatib of the Catenary Press, a press dedicated to designing and constructing handmade poetry chapbooks. Rob Schlegel is here today to talk about his latest collection, In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps, from University of Iowa Press, and selected by Brenda Shaughnessy for the Iowa Poetry Prize. Recipient of Publishers Weekly's starred review, Mary Shebist says this about In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps. Precise and nuanced, this lyric journey is at once fable, field guide, confession, and thrilling meditative adventure. I know of no poet quite so gifted as Rob Schlegel at chronicling the way impulse turns over the mind. Shane McRae says, In the tree where the double sex sleeps is dominated by three of the most remarkable long poems I've read in years and quietly elicits a great clamor of feeling. And Brenda Shaughnessy says that Rob Schlegel has a voice you'd follow into the dark woods, knowing full well it's hard, awful, daily, plain living truth you're running toward. The speaker in this book is a heartbreaker of a storyteller, a synesthesiac of mixed feelings, bad news, and wordsmithery. I feel known, caught out, believed in, vulnerable when I read this book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Rob Schlegel. Thanks. So you, you once described your book prior to this one, January Machine, as beginning at the intersection of Walt Whitman's Democratic Pluralism and George Oppen's Shipwreck of the Singular. And I love that description, partially because of the tension of of intersecting or juxtaposing these two very different impulses and aesthetics. And I guess I was curious how you might describe In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps in this regard, because I do feel, as the term double sex might suggest, a bringing together, perhaps, or a blurring of distinctions between things that might be seen otherwise as opposites. I'm always uncomfortable thinking about using the universal we, which Whitman seemed so comfortable doing. Uh, And this book, the most recent book, has felt like um, a more personal engagement with the lyric I, or a more immediate, almost private uh, relationship with the lyric I, which seems to me a little bit um, more closely aligned with um, Oppen's The Shipwreck of the Singular. I don't feel shipwrecked in this book. I feel a little bit more buoyed by the possibility of likeness with others. Um, Those others, including friends, family, um, and people who want to be seen for who they are 
Well, you've said about this collection, the meaning I'm trying to protect is that the heart is neither boy nor girl. And you've described the book as a search for the mother and the father, the poet and the parent, the forest and the human. And I want to, I want to go into each of these at some point in our conversation today. But before we do, I was hoping we could start with a reading of the introductory poem of the collection Show Cave, which also has a title that is surprising with two words that seem to work against each other and somehow at the same time enhance each other. Show Cave. It begins with hide and seek in the cave spring air warms. Why, even the dogwoods shed blossoms over the dead sculpture garden where the oracle speaks on behalf of the gods. Near the fountain, a few deer, rich with insides different from mine, but the same, incorporated as I am, though wired to nothing. I fold leaves into swans, rearrange the trees. The oracle touches my face. Language is where you live in mere fidelity to narrative, she says. But language is not my first language. Before we talk about the mother and in the father or the poet and the parent, it feels like the book wants us to experience the world of the child in relation to language. Uh, the oracle tells us that language is where you live in mere fidelity to narrative, but language is not our first language. And quickly in the next poem, we are placed in the point of view of a child. And I guess I wanted to hear your thoughts about the wisdom of the oracle about language and narrative versus our first language and, and, and what you are reaching for in this regard. Yeah, I think I was reaching for uh, some kind of acknowledgement in language that language is deceiving. And therefore, what I was trying to do, what I, what I think I was trying to do um, seems impossible because I'm using the very medium um, to try to come to some kind of understanding about the impossibility of the medium. I guess children are like Petri dishes for language and they're trying things on all the time to figure out the boundaries of language and what it can do for them and um, what it can't do for them. So language is always new to a child. Um, as a father, I've been able to witness this uh, firsthand over the past nine years. And um, it's certainly freeing for a child to become more comfortable using language. But it's also, um, language is also dangerous because it can get you into trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a double-edged sword. Well, I wanted to ask you about your aesthetic in, in, in light of your poetry, reaching for our first language before language. You had a conversation with John James in Bomb Magazine where he says, I hardly know anyone who writes stranger and more vivid poems than Rob Schlegel. They have a way of subtly tweaking a world that seems at first familiar, but that is revealed to be utterly disassociative. 
His poems are grounded in the real in a trenchant observation of material and of mundane reality, but they force his readers to confront the ontological categories that structure experience and to gently, lovingly, like a mare to her foal, tear those categories apart. These poems blur the lines between knowable and known, material and transcendence, between signifier signified and what's lost therein. It turns out quite a lot. In the tree where the double sex sleeps reduces objects to mere matter, freeing them of conceptual signification and rendering them raw and new. Such estrangement begets its own clarity. And then similarly, you've said, and, and I really love this line, you, you've said, I want my poetry to be made of language that is somehow so immediate in its transmission that it feels like an electrical impulse. But I also want the language to be aware of its own impossibility. I think this is related to the signified signifier dilemma inherent in every utterance. Don't most poets write to change the shape of the brain and the heart? So I was hoping you would talk about the desire to change the shape of the brain and the heart. And in the world of in the world of the poet on the page, what considerations you use in trying to create a pulse or an impulse on the page in language that somehow goes around it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the impossible uh, task. Um, I guess I feel like the best poems are not derivative of experience but they are their own experience and for the reader they're their own experience which means that for me writing them is a way to possibly change the shape of uh, the brain and the heart so that as I use the material of language my own understanding of the internal structure of the brain and the heart, the soul, the consciousness, um, is transformed. And the more attentive I am to every utterance, to every syllable, um, both as I speak and as I write, um, I think the more alive those actual organs inside my body feel. Um, and that's, I think, what appeals to me so much about poetry. Hmm. Well, I want to maybe push on that idea more, um, I, I like how Mary Sheba's praise of the book she highlights how you chronicle the way impulse turns over the mind mm -hmm. um, rather than a mind thinking about an impulse. Um, it's the reverse. It's an inversion and as if the pulse is both leading and reshaping the mind. Uh, and, I, and that reminds me of the brain being in the heart in your, in your conception of it. And it made me wonder if this was connected to something that you described as one of your most pivotal moments as a writer. So you said that in graduate school, the poet Forrest Gander read one of your poems and said, it looks like you're pretty comfortable working in this mode. 
maybe it's time to pull up the flowers and plant something more difficult to grow. And and you said that since then you've been hyper diligent about not allowing either the form, tone, or content of your work to become too comfortable. So I was wondering how that looked, how how you do that, what ways you employ to push yourself out of the box, and also whether that attempt to not be comfortable is somehow connected to creating the impulse or the pulse, or whether those are just two separate things entirely. I should first attribute that sentence from Forrest Gander to James Schuyler, which is where I think he said that it came from also. Um, and that impulse seems to me to manifest itself in a continual kind of pressure that I put on things like syntax and diction and form. Um, and some of that pressure I think is informed by things that I read, obviously, and also by comments that I get from readers, friends who are readers. Um, and I had a, a fairly formative experience, um, sort of auditing a class at Iowa with the poet Jeffrey G. O'Brien, who was teaching a course on um, form called The End of the Poem. And it certainly um, reshaped the way, and it reshaped the way that I think about form and poetry um, and made me more attentive to choices that I make. Um, I didn't want to write a book of obvious sonnets uh, in January Machine. So I tried to write instead a sequence of sonnets that felt concealed, like they were hiding from themselves as sonnets. Mm. Um, and then that were also interrupted by these moments of static when the form started to feel rote or it started to feel repetitious um, the form would sort of break down into these moments of stasis and I would write these very brief um, couplets. There would be two couplets per poem that would somehow feel like a new charge or a new sort of electrical impulse or pulse that got me into the next sonnet. Um, and those those moments of static come about three quarters of the way through the book after my relationship with those sonnets started to feel belabored. And were there similar ways in which you did that in the new collection that maybe at some point you see yourself repeating yourself in a way that feels like you're too much in a groove? The new collection structurally as a as a collection feels very different from January Machine which I considered one long poem interrupted by these moments of of stasis there are times when I look at in the tree where the double sex sleeps and I think oh I could I could almost read this as a kind of a sequence in the sense that there's this voice at the beginning 
that seems relatively consistent and moves through these scenes and events and internal landscapes and exterior landscapes and finds themselves to be somewhere else at the end of the book. But I don't, I don't know. I think that the consistency within this new book is the long poems, the sequences, the three sequences that feel like touchstones within each section of the book. The book is broken into three sections, and each section contains a long poem that feels like sort of a foundation. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Rob Schlegel about In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps. Well, I want to I want to talk about the first long poem and also connect it to uh, the lyric eyes that you brought up the questions of selfhood and and also persona. Um, so, if we look at Show Cave, the poem that you read, and and the long poem novella that that is the poem that anchors the first third, there are a lot of blurring of distinctions. The rich insides of the deer are both different and the same as us. Leaves of trees are folded into swans. Acorn and wild apple or quince or egg of quail are growing in the child's throat. A bee emerges from a calf's mouth and becomes an owl, which then delivers a prophecy. The child imagines himself as a flock of sheep and wonders if the lemon also tastes him. So identity seems porous the world magical and wondrous and the way of moving through it communal and seemingly forever reinventing itself. And and this interrogation of identity or selfhood, it feels like goes back into your previous collections. For instance, the lines in January machine, I see my face in the face of others and I am the eye undone immersed in perspective and the difficulty of remaining one person or in your first collection, each day I tried to give myself a different name. So I, I wanted to ask you about this troubling of identity in relationship to the lyric I and persona, because you've said that this first long poem, novella, feels central to the mythology of your life as a poet, and that it is almost a persona poem. So, so talk talk to us about that. Yeah. So this poem began as a 50 page long poem that I, that was the next thing I wrote after January machine. I was working in the mode of these long poems that felt like book length projects or whatever. And I began writing that poem after reading Flaubert's three tales, which includes this story, the legend of St. Julian, the hospitator, which is about um, a young boy who uh, kills a mouse in church and um, then becomes this really excellent hunter and ends up killing, slaughtering um, all these deer in a forest. And a stag uh, essentially approaches the young boy and curses him that one day he'll kill his parents. And 
he spends the rest the rest of the story is essentially the boy avoiding that fate until he can't avoid it any longer and um i'm not going to give away the ending because it's a remarkable short story and everyone should go read it um i was transfixed by that story i I could not stop thinking about it um and so i felt like i needed to write my way into that obsession so i wanted to think about my own experience um with with language as a kind of proxy for animals um what acts of violence was i committing with language that was equivalent to this boy in Flaubert's short story, killing these animals. Um, Mm. And it seemed to me like I could maybe begin to answer that question in a 50-page long poem. But I I couldn't um, because there were a lot of, I think, distractions and I just was not, I don't think I was up to the task or I could. And and that is another, another book for a different time. Um, essentially long story short, that, uh, 50 pages was sort of crystallized into this, um, much shorter poem that, uh, feels like it, draws from my own life and relationship with my parents um as well as having another foot in this myth that Flaubert told so beautifully well in in the poetry workshop you taught at Portland State you began the syllabus with a quote by Alan Grossman part of which goes insofar as love wills the existence of what it loves, the principle of poetry is a collective and perpetually renewed act of love that brings the world to mind and mind to mind as the speech of a person at the moment of the vanishing of world and persons, which is every moment of conscious life. To me, this feels like a koan or a a productive koan. And and you take this quote as a launching point to pose some questions to your students, such as, to what degree does a poet exhibit her own presence in a poem? Does human quote-unquote presence require an identifiable speaker? How does the poem bring quote-unquote the world to mind through description and quote-unquote mind-to-mind through form? And I wonder, I guess... I wonder if if hearing Grossman's quote and your own words read back to you, if that sparks anything in relationship to this project and this project approaching a persona poem for you. It does. It feels like if I'm thinking about the trajectory of this speaker in novella and the way in which that speaker changes throughout this book, um i can i can see how there's a kind of self mythology um that dominates the first section of this book and as the book unfolds that 
mythology changes and maybe transforms into something that I'm tempted to call more real, but I think that that formulation or more realistic or more rooted in, in daily life. But I think that that formulation can be limiting. Um, but it does feel like I wrote my way out of a myth and toward a more clear eyed understanding of what it means to be a parent, a poet, a spouse, a friend, a brother, a son. And Flaubert's short story somehow gave me access to that realization. Mm. So mind to mind is maybe my mind to Flaubert's and or my mind to his character's mind, the young boy who is um, given this dark, dark prophecy, or my mind to the deer's mind, or um, the oracle's mind. Well, I'm curious about when you say to your students, bringing the world to mind through description and the mind to mind through form, which seems to suggest you see the mind linked to form and the world to content. But on the other hand, the feeling for me of reading your poems is often that the world is delivering us a new form and that the mind follows and paints in the description. That's great. Yeah, I think that in the context of that formulation, I was imagining mind to mind contributing to some sense of form because form somehow or structure somehow seems more, um, it wanted to seem more cerebral than description, which I don't think of as, as cerebral. It seems more, um, immediate or sensorial. Yeah. And, and so in the context of the classroom, that felt like an easier leap for me and then potentially maybe for students. But I think turning it around also makes total sense. Mm. Can we hear novella? Yeah. Novella. What grows in my throat fits so well I can breathe but not eat. Acorn or wild apple, says the doctor. Quince or egg of quail, says mother. Father draws on the wall a series of lines becoming letters, or are they leaves? How long do I have, I ask. But the doctor is sand. I step into father's forms. Mother's gaze keeps me warm. I blow stones at birds and towers. They rain down on me, make me feel like fainting. I lead a calf into the barn, set to work, beating it, seal the windows for nine days. On the tenth, the barn is full of bees, crowded in clusters, roiling over each other. One emerges from the calf's mouth and transforms into an owl. Cursed child, it says. One day you will kill your mother and father. Two. 
In the garden, mother cuts daisies, fingers a leaf from her hair. On my face, a panic I can't talk my way through because the owl made a nest in my dry mouth. For days, I fight against obsessing over the owl's prophecy. I've a mind to wander, to never see mother and father again. The owl calls my name, scary male flower. The edges of her mouth cracked and bleeding. Ice in my bones, she says. I press my hands around her body. When she stops shaking, I fall asleep. Three. I'm on a stage before an audience comprised of everyone I've ever known. Behind me, a dread glare shines so brightly, one by one the audience leaves. I look out over the empty seats, the wall's dim sconces illuminate paintings of water plants wavering in a temper of plumes. I think childhood was pretty good sometimes, father opening the blinds because he knew the morning light would flood the room. 4. I clean the cavities of shot birds. Sun spreads blood in the sky, opening into an aisle full of noise, airs, delights, and mirrors turning. Children bury children under piles of leaves. One of them turns to me. Mother and father to the bee barn, she says. I walk into the night. Impulse turns over my mind. I smell my hands. Owl. Grapevine. Rain fills the gridded sky. My careful inner forecast is light noise passing for tragedy. In a letter home, I write, Dear mother, dear father, such violent forces, the children's voices. I talk to my doctor but forget his orders. Am I candle boy, attic shape? To leave the circle of my mistakes, I walk to the abandoned church, ring the bell in the tower, hang on the rope with all my weight, feel myself borne up in its flight. 5. Balls of neon light quiver like nerve fibers spilled from the nape of a human neck. My applause masks the terror of thinking I've seen this before. I climb a ladder to a parking garage, open my mouth wider than necessary and close my teeth on a shiny coin. Afraid the cameras are making me real, I walk the spiral stairs through an attic onto a roof whose water tower I scale into an apartment filled with dragon trees, reading chairs, floor lamps casting ovals of light. I could live here, I think then shut my eyes over another crackle of spine light. Every hour takes figuring out how to live again, navigating the next flight of stairs steeper than the last. I realize ascent is the wrong way out. I stop halfway, spit the coin, and finally call out for help. Six. I wake on the hour, no idea where I am, which year of my life. Am I really the person mother says? 
and not the irregular triangle of sheep flocking uphill. Father kills a fish in such a way there grows in me a song I am enlivened by, enough to eat the food on my plate. Mother points at whales breaching in the sound. My mind is almost mine again. I should do something. Help my parents pull beets before dark. But I just sit there, watching rain turn the sound into stone. 7. Why are you grieving? Because the others are grieving. You are not compelled to grieve independently? The grass needs raking. The grass? The leaves. I'll build a fence to keep them from the sea. Then will you help the others? Tollers ring bells even the dead can hear, a ringing such that I am bound to. And the leaves? When they are taken by the waves, I give them names, desiring in this act a homecoming I am constantly denied on account of the owl's prophecy. 8. I wake to a wolf sniffing my groin. Sister wolf, I say, be slow. Do no harm, and I'll provide you a lifetime of live feed and a finger to point with. When I leave to find a herd, I can't help but return to the bee barn. Small holes open in my palms. I feather my sarong. Sister gardener plucks it. I create a border. Brother Dermis maintains it. Trees push up through particles of air, then down through the ground with equal force. Artifice one way, authenticity the other. I pull on my cloak, a remoteness even Sister Virus envies. I pass the time in the barn, wondering what might become of me if those I loved knew the extent of my love. Sister Wolf visits weakly. I confess nothing. She says mother and father are wearing paths into the ground with their pacing. We've been listening to Rob Schlegel read from In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps. I want to return to gender again and to the idea of the double sex and to finding the mother within the father of the quote of yours from the beginning. Because in this poem, there's definitely a gender polarity. Uh, I step into father's forms. Mother's gaze keeps me warm. And father kills a fish. Mother marvels at a whale. And I don't want to be reductive, but it feels like father is also language and that mother is the first language before language hmm. for this child, which aligns with normative gender roles in a way, which I wondered about in relationship to the owl prophecy that one day this child will kill both the mother and the father. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with gender here? Yeah. Uh, it seems to me that you've articulated perfectly the way that I imagine gender dying um, in in the sense that those normative and 
stereotypical and potentially damaging structures that we've maintained and perpetuated, um, I think for too long and to the detriment of, um, a lot of people's happiness and realization, self-realization, um, is, is sort of the core of the investigation of, of this poem in particular, the way in which language exacerbates those binaries um, and has the potential to exacerbate those binaries. Well, I wanted to take this question of gender in the context of storytelling, because the title novella suggests the potential of narrative. Mm-hmm. Um the oracle, the oracle tells us that language is the place where we live in mere fidelity to narrative. And yet Brenda Shaughnessy suggests that the speaker of the book is a heartbreaker of a storyteller. And it does feel like narrative is one loose way this book organizes itself. And story-wise, I think mainly of the Garden of Eden story, which you nod to in various ways as one of the... Um, stories that you're interrogating. But I I wanted to hear about the book's relationship to this story, if you do see it in relationship to this story. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in relationship to that story. Um, But I will say that it seems like the kind of background that has informed so much of Western civilization that it's impossible to escape, especially when that background is so adept at maintaining these stereotypes of male, female. I spun out on this whole thing around it, but I guess I wanted to know, I I presumed or assumed that perhaps you were engaging with the, the rabbinical interpretation of the Garden of Eden story around the double-sexed Adam. Do you, do you know that story? No. Do you mind if I share it? No. <laughs> you don't mind? Um, I mean, because when you think about double-sex, the story of Adam and Eve is told twice in Genesis. So we have that doubling, and there are contradictions in the story. So in one version, Adam is created before everything else, mm-hmm. uh, and Adam and Eve are created simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And in the second version, Adam's the culmination after everything else is created and Eve is taken from Adam's rib. Mm-hmm. And so the rabbis in the Midrash tried to reconcile the contradiction. And the way they did was they explained that Adam was actually double sex. He was him and Eve were a four limbed, I mean, an eight limbed double sexed creature. And that when, Eve was split from Adam. It wasn't from his rib. The word for rib was side. And so basically it was a man and a woman as a double sex creature that was split by God. Hmm. Um, But I was also thinking about the garden of Eden as a place of the double tree, the tree of life and Mm -hmm. the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Hmm. I think are really related to uh, different relationships to experience and language 
because we have the line in novella, artifice one way, authenticity the other, which I think relates to these trees, the tree of life, representing the non-self-conscious life that Mm -hmm. we imagine animals and maybe children are having, Mm -hmm. and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which gives us the ability to think abstractly, create conceptual frameworks, and which causes our fall from nature. And even the prophecy of the owl uh, that the child will one day kill his parents sort of echoes the first act of humans outside of the garden, which is Abel and Cain and the first murder. Um, So maybe that was all just happening, like percolating through streams of cultural influence. I think so. You do? Yeah. Yeah. How does that strike you in relationship to in the tree where the devil sex sleeps? I think, well, yeah, I think I just feel like it's, it's so prominent in our culture that it seems inescapable. Um, and the influence is, is one that, um, feels, uh, useful, but also, I mean, I guess being, becoming aware of that influence somehow makes my understanding of the process of writing just more mysterious Yeah, because, um, you think you're doing one thing, but you're maybe doing three or four. And that's one of the gifts of, uh, writing in a language that has a history. It's also one of the gifts. It's also, I think it's also one of the sort of, um, detriments of writing in a language with history um, because it can potentially reduce a reading. But I think that depends on the reader and whether or not the reader's willing to entertain multiple interpretations. I'm not going to remember the quote correctly, but Brandon Shimoda said something about wanting his art to do things beyond which he intends Mm-hmm. Um, that that's, it was actually the goal in a, in a way. I, I, the quote was great and I can't remember it, but, it, um, it, it just, the uncanniness of art that's alive beyond the intention of the artist. I think. Right. Right. And it seems like the best art allows space for that to happen. Um, whereas maybe lesser arts, lesser forms, reduce and define can you can you speak to your relationship to the term double sex in relationship to the book yeah um i guess the most sort of banal response is that it comes from a line um from rimbaud and i read that line from Rimbaud and was sort of stopped in my tracks by the way that it sounded first and then by the way that it felt and by the way that it encapsulated exactly the way I sometimes feel in this body uh, and in this mind and it seemed like the kind of um, middle that 
was entirely inclusive for me. I know that it's not triple sex or, or anything beyond that. And so therefore it is still somehow limited in its scope, but it seemed like an expansion still for me. Not to belabor the connection to the garden, but when I was thinking about language and, and the first language before language in light of the garden and the fall, I, I thought back to your wanting to find the mother and the father, the poet and the parent and the forest and the human. And I think about what the poet and the parent formulation suggests, the idea that perhaps something poetic is diminished when one leaves the garden of childhood or or more specifically when one is charged with parenting a child instead of being one, that perhaps the speaker in this poem is, or in later poems, particularly in this book, as we move from the point of view of a child to the point of view of a, of a, a parent, that maybe there's this reach to try to get back to the garden as a parent. But tell, talk to us about the poet and the parent and the reclamation of the poet and the parent or even the loss of the poet yeah. and the parrot, parent. Becoming a parent um, terrified me, not in the sense that I was afraid of interacting with my child or keeping my child safe or keeping my child happy or keeping my child engaged in the world. But, um, in the sense that I was no longer a poet first, I was a parent first. Um, and that was really scary because for, you know, 30 years, I knew myself as one thing or as a couple of things. I didn't know myself as someone who was responsible entirely for keeping another human being alive. And that energy was the kind of energy that didn't immediately allow for creativity in language, in poetry. And so it felt like a kind of threat, um, a kind of threat to my own sense of self and identity, which is me just being stupid and clinging too much, I think, to that sense of self and identity. Um, as it turns out, that very tension between my sense of self as a poet and between my new sense of self as a parent was rich territory for writing and I had to sort of, um, surrender myself to that territory, which was scary. And of course it was there and it was going to be there. It was just a kind of emotional and psychological ground that was new to me. And so therefore threatening and, and, um, unknown. But once I stepped into it, it became an incredibly rich experience as a writer and as a human. Well, as we move into section two, we, 
we enter this place you've just described, there's anxiety and disorientation. One is no longer a child, and yet one isn't yet comfortable being a parent. Um, so right at the opening, we get the lines of part two. I can hear the hiss of dazed insects pressed between pages of spiritual experience, but where spiritual experience is the title of a book rather than spiritual experience itself. And we get your poem searches, which I imagine, I imagined as a late night sleepless anxiety provoked litany of Google searches for the answers to the wrong questions. Um, we still get the blurring or crossing of genders this time with in a rehearsal of King Lear, where the speaker who is dressed as Lear chooses to wear Goneril's crown instead. But this time, unlike when the speaker is a child, there's an outside force, a director trying to bring things back to the norm, trying to get Lear that wants to be Goneril to nevertheless read Lear's lines. And while we get the poetic lines in the section that go, boy body, girl body, breathing sleep, they sound the same. This line is spoken not by someone experiencing both genders inside of themselves, but by a parent entering the children's room and witnessing the way it is the same for them from a distance. Mm -hmm. So I guess, I mean, if you have any thoughts on that, I, um, I'd love to hear them. And I'd also love you to introduce a couple short poems from that section and read them too. And I was thinking of early onset and fable on lunar formation. Yeah. Um, just to address quickly the, the, the lines that sort of retell the moment of awareness, um, the girl body and the boy body breathing sleep, they sound the same. Um, that, that was a moment that was vivid and is vivid in my memory, um, sitting in my children's room, which they shared and, and experiencing breath as a form of sort of neutral territory of human ground. Our breath, no matter who we are, is arguably the most universal output and input that we share. And so it seems like a kind of um, universalizing Whit Whitman-esque phenomenon. And it seemed to me like it transcends any kind of stereotype of, of gender also. Mm. And so I experienced that shortly after anecdotally um, participating in a reading of some lines of uh, King Lear. Early onset. I can hear the hiss of dazed insects pressed between pages of spiritual experience. All these gulls in their duress over the boy washed against rocks, rich with berries, hawthorns drop. 
There's the sailor holding my ticket away from love's cut I can't see because of the prophecy. The owl's vacant eye appears more vacant inside the museum of natural history. Hex on the ship is never enough. Eyes damned in the near work, red and tender. There's the oracle. We meet as though we've never met the poem's void under the shadow of swords. Fable on Lunar Formation I know a place, the man says, where we can escape these dangerous conditions. Walls in the house are Kyoto green. This is yours, he says, then steps from a cliff into the sea. I know a place, the woman says, where we can escape these dangerous conditions. We arrive at the mouth of the cave. This is yours, she says, then disappears down a narrow passage. The next day I walk amidst burnt trees. A deer crosses in front of me. I follow through timber, charred and thinning to meadow. The deer stops, but says nothing of the moon's first hour. Been listening to Rob Schlegel read from In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps. Before we move further into the book, I wanted to talk a little more about the notion of self in relationship to it. I think of Eileen Miles, who suggests the self is nothing more than a layering of personas, that there isn't an original or essential self underneath, but that it is being perpetually created or creating us. And I don't know whether you have a philosophy of self, but it does feel like you're undermining the idea of a univo univocal self at the very least, and also enacting the voices of otherness within the self. So now that we've reached the point in the book where the speaker is no longer a child, where childhood is a memory, and where the speaker has reproduced, creating a copy that is the new original of himself and his children. Uh, I wanted to ask about the class you taught called creative influence or what to be within in one's becoming. In your description of that class, you start with the lines, what does original even mean? And instead of teaching the writing of individuals, you teach lineages of influence and some of them are really great and unexpected. So one of the threads is Fred Moten, Nicki Minaj, Frank O'Hara, Cole Porter, and Catalis. And another is Shane McRae, Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison, and W.B. Yeats. And I guess I'd be curious to hear about your own identity or mythology of self placed within a similar thread or stream of creative inheritance or influence. Yeah, I have thought a lot about whether or not I needed to do that after teaching that class so many times. And, and I've thought about what it would be like to try to fit myself into some kind of lineage. Um, and I always think that it's really easy for me to begin that lineage with someone like William Stafford, who is the first poet that I read and loved. 
um, in junior high. And after that, I think that it becomes more difficult for me to see myself in a lineage, but I do feel like there are names and there are modes that feel that I feel a kinship with. And, um, some of those names that may be outside poetry in a strict sense would be, um, maybe someone like Bob Dylan. Um, and, uh, in terms of visual art, I think about somebody like, um, Giacometti, whose sculpture seems to me to always be a kind of exercise for the viewer to revise the way that they see. And Giacometti's sort of obsessive impulse to whittle away or to make sculptures that appeared to be carved or whittled away um, but actually were, I think, um, if I'm getting this correct, were accumulative. He, he would press small pieces of clay together mm. to make these very fragile sculptures as opposed to um, ex- sort of extracting uh, the material away. So they're deceptive in that sense. Um, and then, yeah, I think about George Oppen and... Um, I think about the grand impulses of Whitman, which are appealing and attractive, and I think are becoming increasingly attractive um, in this moment in which we feel potentially more isolated by our screens. Um, It's also true, however, I think, and necessary to acknowledge that in his prose, Whitman was racist, less so in his poetry. And I think there's an interesting and potentially um, revealing study to be done there um, for those who are Whitman scholars and readers. Hmm. But I love Eileen Miles. I love that formulation that you provided of Eileen Miles. Um, describing the self as this multiplicity or just a kind of layering um, that feels like a, f- a sort of philosophy that seems easy to absorb. Hmm. So I wanted to think about the second and third sections of the book compared to the first. The first where, uh, where in the beginning is bees and owls and oracles and prophecies and a sense of the world ever opening and bursting forth. And the latter two sections switch to serpents and spiders and mirrors. And it is here we learn that little baby spiders do this remarkable thing called ballooning, where they go to a very high place, let out some fine thread from their spinnerets until the wind carries them away, sometimes thousands of miles away. But the daddy long legs, unlike baby spiders, don't have spinnerets and can't be carried away. The The third long poem in the book is called Threat Perception, and it's infused with 
a fear and a worry with the anger of a child and with a parent experiencing the lack of access to the world of his children and even occasionally an envy in relationship to it. And I think of a couple lines in relationship to the son who's named Will. One begins, Will describes his day. I look for myself in every word. I never want to exist outside his thinking. And then the line, I hate his knowing so much before reason intervenes. You, you talked a little bit about your relationship with your own son on Montana Public Radio, so I feel, feel slightly emboldened to ask you if you feel comfortable to talk about your own parenting experience in relationship to how it finds itself in threat perception. Sure. Yeah. I want to say, though, quickly that that line... Um that you quoted uh, is acknowledged as um, in the notes, I look for myself in every word. I never want to exist outside his thinking is from Hilton Owl's white girls. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And yet put in the, in the mouth of the speaker parent. Yeah. Yeah. Just a moment of uh, cultural and creative influence. Maybe. Yeah. Troubling of identity. Yeah. And voice. Um, threat perception seems like, um, yeah, it feels like if searches the long poem, that's sort of a series of search engine questions or um, phrases is the most sort of oblique anxiety-induced poem. Um, threat perception feels like a little bit more explicit engagement with that anxiety of um, parenthood and poethood. And this poem was composed at, I think, what is arguably what I consider now to be a kind of um, peak anxiety for me over the past four years, I'd say. And it, it sort of culminated um, in this moment when uh, I was writing Mass Transit here in Portland. And it was actually after teaching a workshop at Portland State, I got on uh, a bus and there was a pool of blood that was near one of the exits and the pool of blood was sort of drifting and um, moving up and down the bus as the bus turned corners and stopped and started. And I was anxious about stepping in that blood, but also anxious even more so about the conditions that led to that blood being there and thinking about where the blood came from and who it belonged to and uh, imagining perhaps that it could have been blood that belonged to me. It could have been blood that belonged to my friends or my family. Um, it was blood that was and is inside all of us. 
and there it was sort of stark in its anonymity there on the floor of the bus. Mm. And that was kind of terrifying to me. One of one of the things you said in relationship to your own son on Montana Public Radio that I really loved was that your son disdains poetry, yet that he speaks in verse. Mm-hmm. What I what I have since come to learn, and it seems so obvious to me now, is that he disdains poetry because he sees it as something that occupies my energy and time and so therefore I don't expend that energy or time um, with him or I don't use that energy or time um, with him so of course anyone I think would feel threatened by the person who is supposed to be their caregiver not paying attention to them. Um, I don't think that I come close to neglecting my son, but I do see how my obsession with poetry and with language and with reading can appear to be a threat to somebody who is um, who has their eye on me and who needs me to see them. Hmm. Could we hear number six and number seven of threat perception? Sure. Will and I paint our fingernails. I know a Nietzsche scholar who also paints his nails, I say. Will's face twists into a dried apricot, as if warning, don't realize me, or we might tumble together depersonalized. Let us treat each other well, as if we are real. Perhaps we are, I want to say, even as I fear for him, that all his life he'll walk alone into the flames of a singular rage. Life forks into countless futures, In one of them, Will and the serpent inside him are my enemies. The serpent bites, spits bile in fits and elbows flying, and words promising worse. I tell Will I can remove the serpent by means of a harmless purge. He lies on his back, shuts his eyes. I rub his stomach until his skin burns. Illusion turned upon itself, opening into the real. The serpents in me, not will. With the these questions of self and persona and, and artifice and authenticity, I mean, obviously, the you in this book is to a greater or lesser de- degree you and not you, and will is is and isn't your son, perhaps. But were there any deliberations on how you wanted to portray him and or you in relationship to him in in published form? The questions that often come up for memoir writers. Yeah. um, Several versions of this this book contained poems that 
substituted my children's names with my son or my daughter. And um, in hindsight, I can see that that is a form of, I guess, an engagement with those pronouns that are that perpetuate male female identity, for better or worse. Um, that would have been one choice that may have. I don't want to say protected them, but it would have concealed their first names um, from a reader. And that kind of concealment to me feels inadequate if I'm wanting to make a truly intimate experience for my reader. And by, by writing my son or my daughter, um, I think somehow creates a sort of derivative experience rather than an immediate, rather than like the immediacy of, of someone's name. Um, will I continue to use my children's names? Um, I think I'm, they're at the age now, um, where I feel like they, I don't know, actually, I don't know if I'm going to continue to use their names. Um, I think one of, one of the sort of influences in threat perception in particular was Alice Notley's long poem, uh, January, which is about sort of investigating the, the domestic and the lyric ecstasy and where those boundaries merge and create tension. And, um, she also, you know, uses first names in, in a lot of her poetry and that felt um, familiar to me and useful to me. There was a very severe warning that I got from my friend Alan, who read a copy of this book and um, warned me against the line, My eyes grow to see you, he says. I hate his knowing so much before reason intervenes. Um that line used to be more that that line used to enact a different kind of a more severe kind of violence against my son's thinking and his knowing and it took an outside reader a trusted reader um for me to sort of see that because it wasn't something I was so, I think inside the frustration of my relationship with my son that I was unable to see that this was the kind of line that a decade from now or five years from now, if he were to read, he would take great offense. So I softened it and that felt like a necessary gesture. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Rob Schlegel about his latest collection of poetry in the tree where the double sex sleeps. I was hoping you'd read Gethsemane um, as a setup to a, a question that I wanted to ask you. Gethsemane. 
The children need space. One hits the other. The wireless breaks, opens to the streets, beings toward death. What worked for them might work for me. Sentences, friends, so ritualistic, they are their own ritual. My daughter says she'll break my blood. I look her in the eye. She's stronger than me. Am I ever myself to myself if I'm not merely remembering myself is how you see the cedar. By you, I mean me further in. That line, am I ever myself to myself if I'm not remembering myself? Which I think raises the question of what it means to be a human. It also made me think of the work of Martin Buber in I and Thou, where he has this, I think, ingenious approach to being both the self that is remembering the self and yet creating space for that which is beyond self-consciousness. I just, I wanted to hear if he was somebody you'd, you'd read or I'd read him liked or. Yeah. I read him in um, graduate school, but wasn't necessarily thinking about him in this poem. Um, I was thinking a little bit about Creeley um, and his lines, which I'm probably going to misrepresent, but they go along the lines of something like, who am I that must be remembered? Um, and it's sort of, you know, the standard existential question. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that I think is made more intense when you're in the presence of a human being that you helped make and whose worldview you're helping to create and form and shape. Well, part, part of the reason I thought of him and I want to connect it to the line you said, um, the mother within the father, the poet within the parent, but now the forest within the human. Mm. It's because he has this meditation on um, being in the presence of a tree. I'm just going to read a short section of it, if you don't mind. Um, I'm going to jump around in it, but I think it's about language and the first language beyond language. I consider a tree... I can look on it as a picture, stiff column and a shock of light, or splash of green shot with the delicate blue and silver of the background. I can perceive it as movement, flowing veins on clinging, pressing pith, suck of the roots, breathing of the leaves, ceaseless commerce with earth and air, and the obscure growth itself. I can classify it in a species and study it as a type in its structure and mode of life. It can, however, also come about, if I have both will and grace, that in considering the tree, I become bound up in relation to it. The tree is no longer it. I have been seized by the power of exclusiveness. To effect this, it is not necessary for me to give up any of the ways in which I consider the tree. 
there is nothing from which I would have to turn my eyes away in order to see, and no knowledge that I would have to forget. Rather is everything, picture and movement, species and type, law and number, indivisibly united in this event. Everything belonging to the tree is in this, its form and structure, its colors and chemical composition, its intercourse with the elements and with the stars, are all present in a single whole. The tree is no impression, no play of my imagination, no value depending on my mood, but it is bodied over against me and has to do with me as I with it, only in a different way. And the reason why I thought of this with your book, this idea of being bodied over against me and yet has to do with me as I with it, um, it's because he has this, this notion, I guess the spiritual notion of we've fallen from the garden and we want to go back. But when we go back in his, his mind, we return with the things that we've gained in the fall. We return to the garden with language and with the ability to, to remember our finding selfhood through the remembering of ourself and yet mm-hmm. also finding selfhood capital S selfhood mm-hmm. again at the same time, which I felt that yearning in the tree where the double sex sleeps. Um, like we've eaten from the wrong tree, we've fallen and we're trying to go back to the, the tree of life. And this is just a really long way of wanting to talk about the forest within the human and the ways that I think you are troubling what it means to be a human um, without erasing what makes us human. Mm-hmm. and also using a very human tool in doing it. Um, and with many of the book's most transformative characters being birds or animals or plants. Would you place this book in a tradition of eco-poetics? I think for me, the trees in a very um, simple way for me have come to represent humans and Buber is, I think in that formulation, which is beautiful, that passage is beautiful to me. What it sounds like he's describing is the realization that the tree is outside of him but so similar to him in his own existence. And it's almost like he's willing to acknowledge the tree has the same kind of potential for awareness that humans have. And I'm convinced that trees in particular are far beyond humans in terms of their own self-awareness and consciousness and being. Trees know how to be better than humans know how to be. And that's, I think, a romantic idea, maybe with a capital R, but I also think that it's um, sometimes feels really true 
the longer I observe any tree, they don't, they struggle and they suffer, but they don't allow that struggle and that suffering to become what it isn't or to become something that it isn't. which humans, I think, have a difficult time uh, keeping themselves from doing. Well, I want to sort of connect this to something you said at the very beginning about novella, about language as a proxy for animals, and how you were, there was that impulse around wanting to explore the violence that can happen through that. Because in, in reading in the way that animals and plants and birds are employed in this book, I thought a lot of um, Forrest Gander and Jeffrey Yang's interest in shamanic traditions, mm-hmm. where shamanic poetic traditions, where language isn't seen as a scrim across reality, that it at least has the potential, particularly for a poet, to be the land speaking through the human apparatus. So mm. maybe we could see words in a certain produce in a certain way could be like the fruits on the human tree perhaps. And that made me think of my talk with Max Porter, where we touched on the poetry of Alice Oswald. And I know that Porter and Oswald, they both hold the poetry of Ted Hughes in high regard. So after I interviewed Max, I, was seeking out a book by Oswald where she collected all of his animal, Ted Hughes's animal poems into what she called a Ted Hughes bestiary. And she says that Hughes worked in the opposite direction of a traditional bestiary, which tries to find the distinctions between man and animals, that some of his poems stand back, turn down voice and observe, but others the language comes out, in her words, tensed and singing as if by dictation from the underworld. And she asked the question, what is it that turns language into an animal? What gives a poem a vivid life of its own, such that nothing can be added or taken away without maiming or even killing them? And I don't really think of your poems as anything like Ted Hughes' poems except perhaps in this sense that when you're saying you want poems to change the shape of the brain in our hearts to create a, a electric pulse or impulse and that you want to find the force in the human, I do think of this Oswald description. I guess I just wanted to hear more about anything that comes up from, from this idea of the shamanic. Because you are talking about the ways in which language might be something we have to break through yeah and then there's this alternate way of of the dichotomy or the opposition disappearing altogether yeah for me language seems to sometimes create opposition and it creates distances and it creates boundaries and it can run away if if left i think to its own devices, language can run away and become violent and become 
profoundly damaging and can be used for propaganda and um, can be used to deceive and to change, to make people think something that is um, untrue and can incite feelings that are maybe harmful to others. I mean, to put it simply, and it's, it's not hard to think of examples of how this is happening right now. And I'm thinking a lot about the interview you just conducted with Brandon Shimoda and um, the border and incarceration and how people's minds can be changed and how their hearts can be changed by language. So it's this tool that seems like one of the most powerful tools we have. And so I feel inclined to be very careful, um, maybe to a degree that's silencing sometimes, which means in the absence of my voice, other voices can emerge. And those voices come in the form of um, animals, trees, other humans whose stories or whose relationship to language will inevitably inform my relationship to language and um, my relationship to, to what it means to be present in this, in this world. When I, when I think about Oppen's shipwreck of the singular and, and the way Luis Glick described him as a master poet of the unsaid, the poetry of silence, um, and where Oppen himself said, because I am not silent, the poems are bad. I, I guess I wondered around, you just said making room for other voices, um, silencing one's own voice. And I wondered about eco-poetics and in relationship to negative space or, and the unsaid and making room for the other, listening, fellow feeling, collaboration, rapport, and how all that can occur in a poem. For instance, your last book was, was dedicated to Brandon Shimoda and, and perhaps in a kindred move to his book, Evening Oracle, January Machine Begins with the intermingling of quotes from poets and emails from your students. And when I think of that move in relationship to the lines, I am I undone, immersed in perspective, or not myself, but a we trying to say what the I might otherwise feign, or in the new collection, I give up trying to name a pure substance. Everything is made of something else. I, I wondered if this, if you would consider this an ethos of sorts, a poetic ethos, uh, part of your poetics, this invitation of otherness into the, in the voices of otherness. We're all matter. And the way that that matter is organized into David, into Rob, 
into Brandon, into table, chair, book, seems utterly random and terrifying, but it also seems completely and beautifully deliberate and magic, uh, magical. And that is a kind of ethos that seems generative in the sense that it requires an attention to see the outlines of each of these sort of defining beings or objects, but then to have the capacity of imagination to see those boundaries dissolve, which is a humbling, I think, and um, potentially transformative way of seeing the world. When you teach poetry, you have people memorize poems of other people to, as you say, inhabit another person's poem as the poem inhabits you. And then to also write an imitation of the poem in order to gain a deeper appreciation of the organizing principles of it. And I was just curious to hear more about memorization and imitation in light of what we've just been discussing. And as a writer and a teacher of writing? For students, it can be really useful to have a good teacher. And by teacher, in this sense, I mean the poem itself. Um, I don't know too many writers or poets who begin writing poetry in a void or a vacuum. Um, so to provide students with poems that feel to me, um, somehow in touch with that student means that I know that student well enough to, um, recommend a poem that they may find worthy of memorizing um, because there are a lot of bad poems in the world, <laughs> but, uh, it's a teacher's responsibility, I think, to help a student find those poems that can become touchstones to them. That said, I also allow students to roam freely the stacks and, uh, the internet for poems that they may stumble upon that speak to them directly without any kind of intermediary like me getting in the way. And, um, those moments seem equally useful. Um, but again, maybe informed by an earlier relationship that an earlier relationship to language that, um, feels comfortable to them. Yeah, I think memorizing a poem is one way of 
allowing another poet's music to get inside your own playlist. And that can manifest itself in your diction, in your syntax, um, the way that you end a line with a rhyme or, or not. Um, so there are much more intricate examples of how memorization, I think, um, manifests in, in a young student's writing. In relationship to what we're talking about around otherness and eco-poetics, I would, I would like to hear you talk about 52 Trees, how it is in relationship to another poet and another poem, and also in relationship to place and in relationship to something going on in your own life, becoming its own new poem of three different creative influences, essentially. 52 Trees is essentially an elegy for John Ashbery, whose poem, Into the Dusk-Charged Air, is this incredibly long, flat, but structurally magnificent litany of rivers, world rivers, and what those rivers are doing. Um, so it's punctuated with these really banal adverbs and river names. And it goes on and on forever, and it maintains this tone that is, like I said, sort of remarkably flat. And I knew that when I started writing 52 Trees, I wanted to somehow replicate Ashbery's procedures, but I couldn't not be more dramatic. So that feels like a failure in some part, in some measure. Um, I was, I was unable to leave my own sort of subjectivity out of this poem in the way that Ashbery, I think, masterfully leaves his subjectivity out. That seems to be one of the projects of that poem. So I started writing 52 Trees at a time in my life when I was not seeing other people at all. Um, seeing who they are or seeing, going out and seeing people? Seeing who people are and acknowledging them and being present and holding them in my presence. I was not able to do that because, uh, because I think I was too concerned about arguably or basically irrational fears. And I knew that this was my anxiety sort of rearing its ugly head. And, um, that anxiety can be traced back to a couple of moments in my life that I just hadn't dealt with. Um, so I woke up one morning with this title in my head, 52 trees. And I knew that this was a poem that needed to be written and that it was going to somehow sort of mimic Ashbery's into the dust charged air. Um, 
it also draws from the title of his book, Some Trees. 52 Trees felt somehow more specific, um, but also weirdly arbitrary. It's a, it's a cold, it feels like a cold number to me. All numbers feel somewhat cold and um, sterile. And so what's nice, what felt nice was to combine that number with something like the word tree or trees. So, um, I've always lived around trees and have, I grew up, um, near, uh, a large forest in the foothills of the coast range in Oregon and trees were ubiquitous. They've been ubiquitous everywhere I've lived to the point where I just didn't see them anymore. And so it was sort of an easy parallel to think of these trees as people and to think of the people in my life as trees that I uh, had just sort of stopped um, being aware of, as aware as, as I had been in the past of their desires and their needs and their, and their own suffering. So I felt by, I felt that like by writing this poem, I was able to slow down and see, begin to see these trees in a way that helped me see the people around me. Well, let's hear 52 trees. 52 trees. And what is it that brought you here? If not the spell, the cedar cast beneath which deer bed on the boughs of the Pacific silver fir. The fire willow's new stems resemble velvet. Addicted to starlings, the sumac shines. Seeds of pitch pine dream in alder while cape holly makes excellent cover for jays building nests out of chinkapin twigs. The bitter orange shineth, albeit dimly, as though at dusk. From silver poplar, Donatello sculpted Magdalene. What does she smell like, if not the flowering pear? A saguaro fulfills an image, but the image is invisible, like salmon climbing the sitka. The lemon's perfume mingles with the myrtle in bloom. Living beyond its light, ginkgo is granted more. The Monterey cypress is relieved of the burden of fashioning its own form. Caterpillars populate the hardy catalpa as the maiden commits to memory the interior dimensions of the common box. The fig exceeds itself. A limber pine is in Montana, growing. The olive waits for it. Jasmine sharpens the hazel's irregular teeth. The Japanese snowbell sleeps. But the knockaway's range is limited and lodgepole pine is prolific to a fault. The paper birch examines itself. Branch by branch, ravens dismantle the Mount Atlas pistachio, while an apricot accuses the hornbeam of murder. Demonstrating poor judgment, quince touch the crown. Ponderosa needles pierce low clouds, 
when Thisbe's splashed blood stains fruit of the mulberry, gray willows become woolly. Lilacs self-medicate. Twin poplars respond separately to the same storm. The redwood churns, a towering shrug. Sycamores go insane. The juniper sways so hard its roots expand like veins. Ariel howls inside the live oak. The Pacific yew is so afraid it grows into a hoop. Taking cues from the copper beech, chestnuts brace. The grand fir falls. Rarely the blue palo verde acts like a tree. The linden is a piece of paper, a paper bird. It is a wood swallow. In spite of everything, it sings for you. According to the common ash, a person shall be called many things. The eucalyptus mourns the plum that never released its leaves. We've been listening to Rob Schlegel read from In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps. It seems rare to me that to see a, a white writer who engages in eco-poetics, who also engages with questions of race. But it feels like you do this in two places in the collection. One, in the epigraph from The Tempest, where Caliban says, there is wood enough within. But even more so, and more overtly in a poem, nature breeds a promise-keeping animal. I was hoping you would read it for us, and then we could talk about it, and then you'd read it again. Mm-hmm. Nature breeds a promise-keeping animal. Pointing to the dead rabbit, my daughter says, Rock. Dogs circle dirt where murder wore the grass away. Absolute arrangement on Lewis Street. Wind ruins the volunteer maples near the lake through which I'm free to wade watching my daughter on shore, drawing circles on paper, mindful of the white space. A different kind of freedom is throwing rocks into the lake and knowing the lake's response. So you said this really great thing about this poem that I think unifies some of the questions you have about language with the things that are operating outside of language. You said, if one of the poet's tasks is to blur the value structures we impose on words, objects, ideas, and other living beings, I can't really articulate the hierarchy between the rock in the first line of my poem, the rocks thrown in the last stanza, and the rock Antonio Zambrano Montes threw at the police officer who eventually killed him but the hierarchy is there and the way it's there has everything to do with my skin privilege. Uh, maybe we can take that as a, a leaping off point for what you're doing in this poem, how this poem arose for you and how these elements around your, your daughter versus uh, Zambrano Montes enter the, the lines. I guess for me, that rock, the way that the rock transforms and can be 
something that my daughter articulates and mistakes for a dead rabbit. Um, and then the rock becomes something that you casually throw into a lake. And then the rock becomes this thing that somehow represents the violence against black and brown people in this country. All of that feels like it's connected to my ability to write a poem that includes all of these things. And that somehow feels connected to my own whiteness. And I'm immediately hesitant, more so than I am um, talking about other poems, to talk about this poem because I don't know how or why my own proclamations of my awareness of whiteness need to be made public. I think it's useful for people like me to become aware of their own skin privilege, obviously. But I don't know how useful it is to make those kinds of exercises or practices public because it seems to somehow... perpetuate white space in a way that seems um, backward or just unhelpful. So that's how I'll start by talking about this poem. Well, let's, let's just hear it again. Now that we've oriented people to some of its elements, which I don't think are necessarily super obvious and maybe people will hear the words differently pointing to the dead rabbit my daughter says rock dog circle dirt where murder wore the grass away absolute arrangement on lewis street wind ruins the volunteer maples near the lake through which i'm free to wade watching my daughter on shore, drawing circles on paper, mindful of the white space. A different kind of freedom is throwing rocks into the lake and knowing the lake's response. I'm listening to Rob Schlegel read from In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps. So before we end, I just wanted to hear your a little bit about your interest in long poems. Your latest collection is anchored by three long poems. As you mentioned, January Machine is a book-length long poem. And your press, Catenary Press, where your co-editor was founded originally to publish long poems. So there's something going on for you and the long poem. Yeah, I fell in love with C.D. Wright's Deep Step Come Shining and then... Claudia Rankine's Don't Let Me Be Lonely. 
over the period of three or four years between 2005 and 2007, 2004 and 2007. And I also started thinking a lot about the serial and accumulative gestures that um, painters might make and how a painter can be obsessed with a certain form or image and just replicate it over and over and over again. Um, and I'm thinking in particular now about my own father, who's a painter and who's spent the last 30 years painting images of structures, houses, um, grain silos, industrial spaces that look like they take the form of habitable structures, maybe. Um, and he's painted hundreds of paintings that sort of just replicate these similar kinds of images. So I think the long poem can be um, a vessel for certain kinds of obsessions and at the same time, it can function as a shape-shifting serpent, something that is all of one piece, but that can turn and head in one direction while another part is pointing in a different direction. Um, so it... The long poem, I guess, has has the capacity for, um, has the capacity to take on a lot, while pointing straight forward toward a certain end, and by a certain end, I mean something terminal. You mentioned before we started recording today that you are already working on new material um, post this book. There wasn't so much of a lull as the book came out. Um, are you surprised by anything that you're creating now in contrast or an extension of around the project we've discussed? Yeah, it seems like I've been able to focus re some recent energy on maybe a more direct interrogation of masculinity um and a few poems have start have a few poems that i started writing this fall um emerged out of the time i spent at a write, at a writing residency um with six women I was the only male there and the writing residency happened to coincide with the time that um, Christine Blasey Ford was making herself public. She was, the accusations against Kavanaugh have, had been out, but people were finally seeing the name and the face behind the accusations. And 
social media was sort of exploding um, with women's stories. And um, it was a very intense time to be surrounded um, by women, by only women, as the only male. And um, the poem that emerged is called The Maelstrom. And it feels like um, the only sort of response that felt possible to me at the time uh, as someone who um, is trying to be more aware of what it means to be a male in this culture in 2019. I was hoping maybe we could end with one last poem from the collection. If we could hear Wind Rings a Bell, The Wind Can't Reach. Wind rings a bell, the wind can't reach. The animal you know throws itself against a mirror. You leave before the smear. Your parents are waiting up for you. You can feel the weight of invisible forces pressing you into a boy or girl with a taste for leaves, colors, lines you move within against labels threat. But you know there is this other world inside anatomy's swoon, semi-formal, burning with dissent. You whisper to the tree, the tree, the murmuring tree, you might take action. Sun melts snow into streams, increasing in volume you control with your lips around history. Your eyes meet. Your invisible dress threatens a slow death. The rest you want to carry, so you listen to the tree and its never quite obsolete magic. Touch your mouth. Touch your mouth if it's bleeding, if you didn't see it coming. Be small in the antique hour, in the ambient barbed wire. Stand up. Act like a man. Act like a man is the story of fortune. Act like a woman. Act like a woman is the story of woman. Raise your hand. Raise your hand, your child. Your child has a dagger. If you don't love her, she'll use it. Touch your face. Touch your face. There you are. Take off your coat. Take off your shoes, your socks. Take off your shirt. Fly into evening's flawed divinity. Land in the tree where the double sex sleeps. Sleep. The invincible summer's inside you. Thanks for being on the show today, Rob. Thanks for having me. We're talking today to Rob Schlegel, the author of In the Tree Where the Double Sex Sleeps from the University of Iowa Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, 
non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Rob Schlegel's work can be found at robschlegel.com and catenarypress.com. For the bonus audio archive, Rob reads some recently published work from the Catenary Press, where he is co-editor. This joins supplemental material by Brandon Shimoda, Ted Chang, Laylee Long Soldier, Boris Gander, John Keane, Christine Scutt, Diane Williams, Christina Rivera Garza, and others. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>